Well, good evening. It's a privilege to be with you and be able to open up the Word of God to you tonight. Even from a very familiar passage, we come to one of those passages of Scripture where if you have been around the church at all for very long at Christmas, we are, there's several passages we continue to go to. And tonight is one of those, Luke chapter 2. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 as we go to the text and ask the Lord to open up for us things old and new, as uh, we ask Him to illumine the Scriptures to our minds and to our hearts. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21, I invite you to listen as I read in your hearing what is the very Word of God. Beginning in verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased." When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come to you on this night of your day and gather to sing your praise, to declare our faith in the Christ who has come for us, our gratitude for your promises made and your promises kept. We thank you for this, your word. And now we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would illumine the word to us by your power, that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might believe him, love him, that by your power we might be conformed more to him and even equipped for service to him. 
So Lord, would you please, from your, as it were, from your pulpit in heaven, speak through your word by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm really happy if one of the, my gift givers uh, gives me a new biography for Christmas. That's what I do when I get to read in downtime. Just grab a biography. I thrive on an account of some historic figure that's had some impact on history. And biographies can actually have a massive impact on your life and actually on your ministry. I've actually assigned biographies in my pastoral theology courses to my students. Biographies, when they're well done, teach you history. They teach you character, both good and bad. And they can inspire you and even orient you to why the world you live, why the world is the way it is that you now live in. I'd be happy if somebody put a new biography under the tree for me on Christmas Day. The New Testament gives us four infallible, impeccable, inspiring, life and eternity transforming biographies of the most pivotal figure in all of history. Jesus Christ. The four biographies are called the Gospels. This Gospel was written by the meticulous Dr. Luke. When he introduced his biography way back in chapter 1, he said he had researched it and he had written it carefully and systematically to provide his readers with certainty about their faith in Jesus. And his careful, systematic, certainty-supporting method is never more evident than in his description of Jesus' birth. Dr. Luke is careful to give us details about where and how Jesus was born because that matters in the claims that Jesus makes about His right and His power to rule over us and to redeem us. See, we can't have certainty for our faith in Jesus as our ruler, as our redeemer, if we're not sure that He has the God-given credentials to forgive us or set us free or protect us or prosper us. So, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Luke gives us the facts that we need to be sure. So, here's the faith-securing impact of the facts that introduced Jesus' biography in Luke 2. Here it is. The facts of what happened around Bethlehem Help us see and be certain about the good news of God's glory in Christ and share it. Following Luke's careful narrative, we're going to be helped in our faith in Jesus by seeing first, we're going to see the glory veiled. Second, we'll see the glory proclaimed. And then third, if you follow with me, we want to, we want to share the glory seen. Sharing the glory seen. First, Let's see the glory veiled. Luke tells us that Jesus was born of the house of David, in the city of David, and he was born of Mary while she was still a virgin. Now, it was pretty common for Rome, as the ruling world empire, to take a, take a census so they can assess taxes. That happened in other parts of the empire at other times as well. But Luke is very specific that this was the census when Augustus was Caesar. You might know Augustus was the emperor who so put down rivals and rebellions that there was peace throughout the empire, allowing it to prosper and to remain unrivaled in its power. 
Quirinius was apparently an able soldier and administrator who had been assigned to govern this particular region of the empire. So in giving us these facts, Luke not only objectifies the claims about Christ, but he teaches us something about how God uses governments in history. And that's actually really significant. You recognize here's the most powerful person on the planet, Augustus, and his deputy, Quirinius, exercising their power to move people around, they think, for the purposes of their empire. And really, they are instruments, unwittingly, in the plan of God to bring the king of kings, who alone has all power and brings lasting peace to the place of his birth. I think that fact alone shows us the glory of God. It shows us His sovereignty. It shows us His wisdom. They are such that even the most powerful leaders and nations on the planet are unwitting agents in the hand of the Lord. Proverbs says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And I think that helps us when we're anxious about the motives and the movements of our government and the governments of the world. Even the most powerful people in the world are not functioning outside of God's sovereign plan. History is His story. And God, in His power and wisdom, uses governments and nations and events to accomplish His glorious purposes for His people. And I think that being reminded of that can help us to get our Head above the waves of worry in such turbulent times when we watch the news and we read the headlines and we're inundated with Twitter feeds. As people who have been given the knowledge of God in Christ, we can be certain that God is using even those events to accomplish His kingdom purposes. Even if the powerful earthly rulers who are leading the events don't even acknowledge God, like Augustus and Quirinius. Even when His hand is sometimes veiled behind the events and players of history, God's glory is seen in His command of history toward the causes of His kingdom. Recognize what happened. In this moment, He uses the emperor of Rome to put parents from Nazareth in the city of David so that the promised king could be born at the right time in the right place. That's the glory and sovereignty of God. Here's the reason that the place, the city of David, is important. If we had been studying Luke all along together, we'd have seen from chapter 1, Zechariah's hymn, how important God's covenant with David was to the hope of Israel. And how overjoyed Zechariah was that God had kept his promise. See, David means deliverance. David means defeat of God's and our enemies. So David means hope. And a major theme of the rest of the gospel will be how Jesus' words and Jesus' works reveal the promised son of Israel's greatest king. But the king's glory is veiled in how he comes. So you would expect a great king, especially one with so much to his name as the son of David, to arrive on a great war horse like Alexander the Great, surrounded with his army, and trumpets announcing his arrival. But King David's greater son arrives in a shed, or quite possibly a cave in a feeding trough. See, we're in a season 
when we can, at times, sentimentalize the picture. Singing the songs about how the snow was gently falling and how well behaved the cattle were and the sounds that they made and the like. And we can have a false image that somehow, because it was Jesus, because it was the Virgin Mary, this was some kind of pristine, painless kind of delivery ready to be portrayed on a high-gloss card. Kent Hughes reorients us to the reality by giving us a description of the birth in these conditions. Here's how Hughes puts it. Sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood, the baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space, his face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. Now the point in reorienting us to that reality is not to discourage us from enjoying the sentiments of the season. Just show up at my house, there's lots of them. But it's to help us see how profoundly humble circumstances these were for Israel's great king to be born in. And that's actually just the first installment of the way his kingdom comes in this age. Jesus of Nazareth came to rule, establish his rule as a baby in a manger. He lived in Palestine as a carpenter and a poor itinerant preacher. And then he died on a cross. The most vivid symbol of weakness and shame that their day had to offer. This is not the way that you establish yourself as a ruler according to the world's calculus. Our current political culture is a vivid reminder of the stark difference. Politicians want to present themselves in the media as fit, muscular, impeccably well put together. If you watch debates, it's seen as a sign of weakness if you're not talking over the top of other people, constantly grabbing the microphone. The optics of power in this world and this world's terms require posturing yourself, strutting yourself, self-promoting pomp and circumstance, and then we get told that's leadership. And we adopt that worldly approach in our own little day-to-day kingdoms. Our marriages, our church fellowships, our relationships with family, partners at work, friends at school. The way to make life work, the way it should work for us, we think, is to be self-promoting, self-posturing, make a splash, put your glory on display, put it out there for everyone to behold. And we do it in the way we talk, the way we treat other people, even the way we take our place in a room. But the rest of this gospel and the rest of the New Testament tells us this is the way that the kingdom of Christ comes in this age. Self-denying, self-effacing humility and even suffering now with glory on the other side of the resurrection. And that's the way it is for us because that's the way it was for our king to whom we're united if we believe. See, the Christmas celebration should remind us of the humble, poor manner in which Christ's kingdom comes in this age. And it should help us calibrate our expectations for our experience as subjects of God's kingdom in this world. Perhaps a more realistic, less triumphalistic expectation of how the only lasting kingdom really comes 
can help calibrate our fears and our aspirations as we watch the world that we've learned to enjoy decay around us. Perhaps it might help us when we do need to fight for the truth, to fight for the glory of God and not just to fight for our own sense of prosperity and protection. Well, the veiled glory of the king actually becomes more amazing when we remember that this is the way not only of the son of David, but actually the eternal son of God. There's a little line in verse 5 that speaks volumes. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, why is that important? Well, Mary's still betrothed, not yet his wife, and she is with child. We're being reminded that Mary is still, at the time of birth, a virgin. So that the baby who came into the world is not only of David, but divine. This is the child who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the will of man. The glory veiled here is not just the glory of a promised king, but the glory of the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity. In that trough, in that cave, as Thomas Goodwin put it, heaven and earth met and kissed one another, namely God and man. Just think about this. God the Father prepared a human body and soul which the Holy Spirit formed by His power in Mary's womb and the eternal Son in His love willingly took it upon Himself. So that the person in whom the divine and the human nature were united came into the world in those profoundly inglorious circumstances. Stephen Charnock expressed the wonder this way. Here's what he said. What a wonder that the two natures, infinitely distant, should be more intimately united than anything in the world. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon the throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering servant. The incarnation astonishes men upon the earth and angels in heaven. That astonishment is really the response to which we are led. What we're left with when we see the glory veiled that took place in that stall. And seeing His glory, even veiled in the way He came into the world, transforms your hopes, it transforms your fears, it transforms your life, actually for all eternity. Well, we're helped in that by seeing not only the glory veiled, but now, secondly, would you see the glory proclaimed, the glory proclaimed. Look at verses 8 to 14 again. The idea of glory runs all the way through this episode. The glory of God is the outward display of His beauty and brilliance. It is the radiant expression of His manifold perfections. It's where and when God puts His perfections on display so that it can be, they can be seen and they can be sensed in His creation. At major moments in God's plan for His people, God's glory gets visibly displayed. For example, the glory of God is seen over the tabernacle as Israel journeys through the wilderness. The glory of God descended on the temple when Solomon built it in Jerusalem. And the presence of God was so weighty that the priests couldn't continue their service. So now, 
out in a field near Bethlehem, the Lord again puts His worth and His weight on visible display. What is veiled in the stable is blasted throughout the countryside with the assistance of an angelic choir. Because God is again doing marvelously for the glory of His name and the good of His people. Worth grasping here is how the glory and the good of His people go together. You notice as the angels declare it. See, sometimes we can fall into thinking, we do this all the time, we can fall into thinking that if we are about God, if we're God-centered, then we, not, we should not necessarily think too much about people. To think about people and their good is not to be God-centered. Or we can fall into the opposite error. Because people matter to God, we think and act as though people are the ultimate focus and we become man-centered. What you see in the announcement of the angels is that God does His people good for His glory. And it is to His glory to do His people good. So with the angels, our desires should be focused on God being glorified in the good that He has done for His people. If we see the glory of God in Christ, we will be passionate about His praise being magnified as His grace extends to more and more people. You can't say you're about the glory of God and you're not concerned about the people Christ came to save. So well, where do you get that idea? I'm glad you asked. I draw it from what the angels say as the glory of God is displayed all around them. Watch what they say. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. And the good news is that the Savior from sin, the promised anointed one to be the Redeemer and ruler of God's people, has been born. Down in verse 14, the heavenly army's song, Glory to God in the highest. Give Him all the honor He is worth. And on earth, peace among those with whom He is well pleased. Those on whom He has shed His favor and His grace. Here's the point. The display and the declaration of the glory of God is centered around the good news, the gospel, the peace He is making with sinners through Jesus. Those who desire and declare the glory of God delight in His grace towards sinners. So, if we indeed see the glory of God and what He has done in Jesus... The two have to go together in our lives. If I could put it the other way around in the negative, we cannot claim to be concerned for the glory of God if we're not concerned if the good news of the glory of God gets out to sinners. Nor can we say we're genuinely concerned for the eternal good of people if that concern is not fundamentally and finally driven to make much of the God who saves. Being God-reverencing and being evangelistic go together. The more we truly see the glory of what God has done in Christ, the more we will be passionate about extending the worship that reveres God and about the witness that rejoices in the gospel. And in fact, we see that in the first witnesses to the glory of Christ in the gospel of Luke. The first witnesses to the glory of Christ in the Gospel of Luke are the shepherds. That brings us to our third point this evening. We've seen the glory 
veiled. We've seen the glory proclaimed. Now look at the glory shared, sharing the glory seen. Just look back at verses 15 to 20. We'll just read it for you again. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds heard the proclamation of the good news. They saw the baby Christ and they began to make known what they had been told while glorifying and praising God. Now, you have to understand, these guys are not a bunch of theologians. They're not priests. They're not scribes. They're not even apostles who haven't been selected yet. They're shepherds. They're poor. They are humble people. And that's actually the point. You see this again and again through the Gospel of Luke. The kind of people that Christ and His kingdom comes to, the kind of people that the kingdom is extended to and extended through, are often people of low estate that the high and the mighty don't really have much use for. That's surely a disclosure of the grace of God that He would choose to give this kind of revelation, this kind of disclosure of His glory to shepherds. And now, by His Spirit through His Word, to us. Time and again, when the Scriptures are open to us, when we read the Scriptures, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And God is revealing His grace to the likes of us. So the most important question in response to the facts in Jesus' biography is how have we responded? Have we responded by faith to the God of glory and grace? who has allowed us to see His glory in the face of Jesus. Let me put it this way. We can sit in the pew Sunday morning, Sunday night, year after year, and hear and see Christ proclaimed. The question is, have you responded to Him by faith? In the shepherds outside of Bethlehem, we see ordinary people who saw and heard the glory of God in Christ and not only did they respond, but then notice that they were driven to share what they saw. Do you know the story of the shoe salesman who came to believe in Jesus? On one occasion, he heard about a judge in his city who was well-known critic of Christianity. So the converted shoe salesman decided to visit the well-educated man of significant standing and notoriety in the city, and he was going to share the gospel with him, this, critical, this critic of Christianity. Well, the very well-educated judge found it quite amusing that such a simple man would presume that somehow he could show him and convince him of the truth of the Bible. And as they sat there and discussed in the judge's office, near the end of the conversation, the simple shoe salesman finally said something like this, Sir, you're an unbeliever and a skeptic, but I'm praying for you. And left 
the office. Sometime later, the judge showed up to a meeting that the shoe salesman was holding to inform him that, in fact, the judge had now come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that simple shoe salesman had that kind of impact on many, many other people too. His name was Dwight Moody. Here, it's shepherds who make known the saying that had been told them concerning this child from the angels. And they show us how it is that God makes the good news of His glory in Jesus Christ made known to more and more people. Here's how He does it. Ordinary people who have seen His glory returning and praising God for all they have seen and all they have heard and all they have been told about the Son of God who has come to redeem, who has come to rule. The good news of what God has done in Christ is shared through the humblest in society who have seen His glory and tasted His grace. The facts about the events around Bethlehem help us see the good news of the glory of God in Christ. Believe it and then share it. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that in your love you have sent your only begotten Son into the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And in this room, on this evening, we thank you for the grace upon grace that you have allowed us, even if it's tonight for the first time, to hear and see the glory and grace of God in Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you for your glory made known. We praise you for your Son, who is our Redeemer. And we praise you that in your heart for the nations, you are not yet done gathering in the innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that you have chosen to use ordinary people in your Son, filled with your Spirit, to share about the glory and grace of God. And so, Lord, in this season, as we enjoy time with friends, with family, as we enjoy the sentiments, as we enjoy the trappings of the season, would you help us to lift up our hearts and our minds to you and deepen our faith and deepen our love and deepen our service to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.